Hey, we're glad to have you here with us today at One Chapel. We're a church in Lake Travis that helps people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. You can learn more about One Chapel and the things God is doing here at onechapel.com. Now, here's this week's message. Morning, everybody. It's great to see you here this morning. Hey, real quick, um, we should have a couple of different things on your chair here when you came in. I'm just going to kind of explain them just a little bit here. Uh, first of all, as you saw, Easter is next Sunday. Oh, come on, everybody. It's Easter next Sunday. Uh, and so these are there for, not just for you, but as invite cards. So please, this is, this is the best time of the year to invite your friends and family. People will come with you to church on Easter. And so please take these. There's a whole bunch more around the building. Um, use these to invite people. And um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a great Sunday. We have a lot planned. Um, people have been asking me. I was gone the last couple of weeks up in Wisconsin. They asked me if I was cold, if I had to um, grow some hair. But no. Um, it's all for next week, and so you'll have to come next week um, to see why there is a little shadow growing on my face. Um, so that's what those are. Also, then, you also have these little Who Am I cards. And so if you didn't get an email, if you didn't read about it, if you haven't been watching the announcements, we, after Easter, so on starting April the 28th, we're doing a six-week series called Who Am I? And so we're going to be doing it in our Sunday services as our Sunday um, sermon series, but as well, we have groups that are going to be attached to those, those, and I just think it's a great thing. Um, it's just, if you did, like, when we do it, we're doing this James series, if you, if you had the chance to kind of go through it during the week in the small group study, it just really enhances everything, and I love when we as a church just kind of all get on the same page, and for a brief period of time, we're all kind of going in the same direction, and that's what I'm looking forward to this series, and so we have all these different small groups that are going to be launching for these six weeks. And so my ask of you is if you could kind of reprioritize your life, make room to be a part of one of these groups or during the day, they're during the evening. They're all during the week in all different parts of this kind of Lake Travis area. And so you'll get more and more information, but I want to give you a heads up for this um, so that we don't just, a lot of times we have everybody that comes to church on Easter and then it's like I've done Easter and then I can go back to whatever I was doing and we kind of forget about this, but it's a great way just to just kind of carry on what God did in us during this Easter season. So that is what that is. And then also, parents, just as a reminder, right after service here, 1115, will be the Easter egg hunt and two different areas for littles and tinies and bigs out there. There's a bunch of signs out there. Um, and there, it's for both services coming in, so that's why we're doing between services. Also, parents, there's a petting zoo out there for your kiddos, and so you can kind of linger there, get some coffee, hang out, um, and enjoy the beautiful weather that we have here. I just came from Wisconsin, and it was still stinking cold and snowing, um, and so I am so grateful. I know all of you thought it was cold here yesterday. It was not cold here yesterday. Um, this is beautiful weather that we have, uh, and so I am just so grateful for all of you. I'm grateful to be back. I've gone the last two weeks, and I've been, I've been telling people, I feel like I was gone for a month. I don't know why that is, but it is so, 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 so good to be back home, and I'm glad to be with you here this morning. If you want to get your Bibles out, please, and turn to the book of James. Like I mentioned, we have been doing a series around here that where we're going through the entire book of James, and and if you've been able to be here the last six weeks, I hope we've gotten something out of this because James is the most practical book in the New Testament. It really is a how-to manual for the Christian life, and we've been kind of picking it apart 
during these last six weeks. There's just so much jam-packed into these five chapters. And so we're on the last chapter, James chapter 5. And so today, we're going to look at what James has to say about how to be wise with your wealth. Come on, turn to your neighbor, poke your neighbor, and he say, this message is for you. Uh, I, I saw that. All right. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your cloths, clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, before we jump into this, I I, I feel like I need to give a little bit of qualification here because my personal opinion is I think you all are amazing at this, by the way. I've been pastoring now for almost 30 years, and this congregation is more generous than any congregation I have ever been a part of. What I've seen you all do in the last nine months and coming alongside of people and people in need and in desperation has just shocked me to the core. And so I, I want to give that condition because you need to hear it from my heart. I'm just here cheering you on because I think you're doing so many of the things that James is talking about here. And so please don't listen to this as in, in any sort of condescending way. I think this is, this is good for you to, to be able to say, oh, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing well at this. Or maybe I could probably do a little bit better at this. Or I probably need to take this and I need to tell such and such a person because I'm doing good, but they're not doing so good at this. <laughs> Whatever you want to do with it. But I just want you to know, I think you all are doing amazing here. But let's look at what James talks about here. Because obviously he's talking about this issue of money and the power that money holds in our lives. And then how as Christians we're to be wise with our wealth. And so I, I think the problem in talking about money in church is that I think a lot of times it creates a reaction. There's a reaction that happens because the pastor's trying to get something, the church is trying to get something from, from me here. But before you get your panties in a wad and before you start getting offended at me, I think it's really important that you understand that money is just a huge topic in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, it's, it is the main subject of nearly one half of all the parables Jesus told. Think about that. Of all the parables Jesus told, nearly half of them deal with money and possessions. 15% of everything that Jesus taught was on the topic of money and possessions, which is more than when he taught about heaven and hell combined. Isn't that interesting? He talked more about money and possessions than even heaven and hell combined as well. In the New Testament, one out of every seven verses deals with this topic. And just to give you a little perspective about that, in the Bible there's 500 verses on prayer There are less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money. And so this should give us a little bit of indication that there's something God wants us to understand about this. It was Martin Luther who said, there are three conversions a person needs to experience. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. And so I want you to think about as we talk about that here today, the conversion of the head. Have you had that? The conversion of your heart. Have you had that? and the conversion of your pocketbook. There's just something fundamental between our spiritual lives and how we think and how we handle our finances. Now, many people think that 
Um, that the Bible teaches that it's wrong to be wealthy. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of people think that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. But it's not what Scripture says. Scripture says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. First Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So please listen, everybody. God's not opposed to wealth. God's not opposed to for increase and blessing in your life. As a matter of fact, many of the people that are talked about in Scripture were extremely wealthy. Abraham was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire in his terms of the times that he lived in. Job was the wealthiest man in the world at that point. David and Solomon were the wealthiest men in their generation. Joseph of Arimathea, who is the guy who gave Jesus his tomb, was extremely, extremely wealthy. And so God's not opposed to wealth. What he is opposed to is the misuse and the abuse of finances in our life, which is why God wants us to learn how to use our wealth wisely, no matter how much or how little we have. And so here in these verses, James gives us some keys of how to handle wealth, and it kind of hits this pretty hard, as a matter of fact. He kind of presses really hard into this issue. So look, let's look at these keys that he gives us. Because the first key um, they talks about is the accumulation of wealth. The accumulation of wealth. Verse 3, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. In other words, James is saying that one of the common abuses of wealth is hoarding. In other words, it's getting more and more and more just for the sake of getting more so that you can have it and use it for yourself and flaunt it. See, so, you know, what really James is talking about here is the issue of selfishness. It's the gaining more for the purpose of being able to spend it on myself. And James says, come on, everybody, stop that. Stop doing that. Stop using your finances that way. This is not about you. Just, it's not just about what you want and what, what, what you're doing. Stop abusing finances that way. That's the wrong way to accumulate wealth. So look at how the Bible describes what the right way is to, for the accumulation of money and what that looks like. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says, The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Here's another proverb, Proverbs 30 verse 25. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Now, what is this principle? Anybody? anybody? It's the principle of saving, right? It's interesting when we compare Americans to other cultures, because as Americans, the statistic is, is that only about four, we only save about 4% of our income. As Americans, we're only saving about 4% of our income. Europeans, on the other hand, they save about 16% of their income. And the Japanese, they save about 25% of their income. So think about that. Because what is it about us as Americans? What's the difference? We're talking about first world countries comparison. What's the difference between us and then other cultures? Why do we save so little here in the United States? Well, I think it's because we here in America, we live for today. We're called the now generation. Everything is about right now. I want it now. Even though I can't afford it, I want it now. I'll just put it on my credit card. That's the generation that we're talking about here that's here, here in the United States. And so I think what we have to do as Americans is we have to look at, okay, what is God's priority in all of this? Why is saving so important? Because the world says the reason why you need to save is for security. 
In other words, you've got to have money in your bank account so that you can have security in case you lose your job, in case this happens or that happens. You need to have security, so you need to build up this reserve. But I want you to think about this because as a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's not the reason why we save. Look at this in Philippians 4, verse 19. It says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now look at this. Because who is your supplier? Who? Now, does it say your job is your supplier? Does it say the, the United States government is your supplier? Does it say the economy is your supplier? Does it, does it say your investment? No, it's a God. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the first principle of finances, that God is your supplier. He is, we look to him to supply. He is your source of that, and that's where our security comes from. That's why as a follower of Jesus, your security cannot come from what's in your bank account. Then that gets it off, you're tilted off if you're putting your security into that. The reason why as a follower of Jesus that we are to save is because of stewardship reasons. It's a stewardship issue, not a security issue, because when I save, then I can use my money much more wisely. Proverbs 21 verse 20 says, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. And so when I save, not only do my spending habits become less impulsive, but then I'm able to help others when they have needs. And really, this is a principle that oh, you see over and over in Scripture because God wants to bless you and get that through your thick skull. God wants to bless you. But it doesn't stop with a period there. The sentence continues because God wants to bless you in order so that you can then bless others. You hear me? We're to be flow-throughs. Don't, don't just let it st- stop in you. That's when it gets stagnant. But we're to flow through that God wants to bless you so that you can then be a blessing to others. And that really is the biblical way to accumulate wealth. Here's the second issue that James talks about, and that's the issue of the appropriation of wealth. The appropriation of wealth. Look at verse 4. It says, Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields, are crying out against you. In other words, what James is talking about here is don't use dishonest means to rip people off. Don't use dishonest means to rip people off. Now, how do we do that? Well, if I charge you too much for a product, then that's dishonest appropriation of wealth. If I sell a used car to you and I'm not honest about the major repairs that it's going to need then that's a dishonest appropriation of wealth. If I cheat on my taxes, everybody, that's a dishonest appropriation of wealth. If I waste my time at my job and I'm being paid for it, that's a dishonest appropriation of wealth. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, now he's talking about you. (laughs) You you hear what I'm saying? It's so easy, and it's so easy to kind of look at it and say, well, I'm I'm okay with this, but then when we have to really kind of boil it down to the main issues... It's so easy to have just a wrong appropriation of wealth. And so God's not just concerned with with what we've got, but how we get it. That's really, really important. So look at how the Bible describes the right appropriation of wealth is to happen in our life. Proverbs 13, verse 11 says, Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Let me just encourage you, if you don't have a a good Bible reading schedule in your life, start reading the book of Proverbs. It's an easy book to read, 31 chapters, and so 
whatever the date is. So today, I've lost track of time. What is 14th? It's 14th. So um, just read Proverbs 14. Whatever the date is, just read that proverb for the day. There is so much wisdom jam-packed in the book of Proverbs. And so here he's saying, dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. There are at least six times in the book of Proverbs where it says, don't get involved with get-rich-quick schemes. You see it over and over and over in the book of Proverbs. In other words, easy come, easy go. It comes easy to you, you're going to lose it quick. Proverbs 14, 23 says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Here's another proverb, Proverbs 12, verse 27. If you're lazy, you'll never get what you're after. But if you work hard, you can get a fortune. Over and over, you'll see this in, in, in Scripture everywhere. The value of hard work. The little by little. But if all you're doing is just dreaming and talking about things... That figures way, trying to figure out ways that you can get more money that's going to end in, in a disaster for you. Which means what matters to God, again, is not how much money you make, but how you make it. And then here's the third issue that James talks about, and that's the allocation of money. The allocation of money, or in other words, how we spend it. Verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the days of slaughter. So what James is talking about here is the more money you make, there's a tendency to, it's easier for you to waste it. The more money we make, it's just kind of easier just to waste. We, we kind of lose track of where it goes. The message says it this way. You looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show for is a fatter than usual corpse. Somebody needs to write that one down and put it on your refrigerator, <laughs> right? You looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. And so I think we say things like, we justify a kind of our thing. You know, I'm worth it. I can afford it, so why not? Why not? But listen to everybody. Just because I can afford it doesn't mean that I should buy it. And so that's what James is saying. Don't waste money. Still be a good steward of your money. So look what the Bible says about the right allocation of money. Proverbs 21, verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about planning your investments, planning your spending. Now, I, I, think, I always think this is interesting because did you know that the number one reason for, for my financial pressure is not because you don't make enough money? A lot of type People think that's where my pressure is coming from. I just not have enough money and I not, not have enough money in. Statistics actually show that as Americans, that the average American household will bring in two, over $2 million in, in, in your lifetime, which means that means almost everybody here in this room are millionaires. And so the problem, the problem is not we don't have enough money coming in. The number one reason for financial pressure is that we don't spend the money we have wisely. That's where financial pressure comes from. Proverbs 27, verse 23. Riches can disappear fast, so watch your business interests closely. It's so true, isn't it, everybody? It's just so true. It's like, where did it go? You know, I just put some money in here. Now it's all, where, where, did, where did all this money go? And so how do you watch your money? How do you keep track of your money? Well, there's one word. Budget. Budget, everybody. And I know when we hear that word budget, I think some of you have us cringe, right? It's like, mm, Mufasa, mm, you know? It's like, budget, mm, you know? It's just like, ah, you know? It's, uh, it's that, that type of thing, I think, for so many of us. But listen, everybody, budget is just planning your spending. That's, that's what budget is. 
Budget is just planned as spending. It's telling, your, it's telling your money where you want it to go rather than wondering where it went. And some of you, you're, you're, you're confused because you can't figure out where it goes. Well, the answer is get back to a budget. Look at a budget. Get it down, and, and your budget will tell you where you want your money to go versus wondering where it went. See, that's, that's, this is God's side of what, what, how we're be wise with our finances. And so God not only wants us to make money honestly and, and to save money faithfully, but he also wants us to spend it wisely. And then here's the fourth key that James talks about, and that is the application of wealth. The application of wealth. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, here what James is talking about here is how we use money's influence. Money has influence. And evidently, in James's time, there, there were people, there were the rich people, the wealthy people were buying off judges and circumventing justice. In other words, if I, if I wanted to take advantage of somebody, I would take them to court, I would have a conversation with the judge, and I'd slip them some bills so that the court would turn it in my favor so I would get what I want. That was what was happening in James's day. The New Living Translation, it says it this way. You have condemned and killed good people who had no power to defend themselves against you. Listen, everybody. With money comes influence and power. Money brings influence and power. And even today... A lot of people use money to manipulate others. And I'm not just talking about what you see in the news. We see that every single day in the news, how power and money are used to manipulate um, and to get people to do things that you want them to do. And so that, that, I think, is clear. But I think you need to dissect it just a little bit further because I've known families where one person's keeping relatives under control with a threat of cutting them out of their will. I think as parents, it's easy to do this as well because you can try to keep your kids under control by bribing them with an allowance. James is saying, listen, everybody, that's the wrong application of wealth. You're using money to manipulate things. And James says, stop it. That's the wrong, that's the wrong application of money. So here's what the Bible says is the right application of money. Proverbs 11, verse 24. It says, it is possible to give away and become richer. It is also possible to hold on too tightly and lose everything. Yes, the liberal man shall be rich. By watering others, he waters himself. Did you know that there are more promises in the Bible related to giving than any other subject? There's more promises in the Bible related to your giving than any other subject, which means the vast number of these scriptural references about giving and generosity should give us a clue of how important it really is. And when you look at these, at these scriptures, the common theme of the right way to apply our money has to do with people and eternity. It's always wrapped up in our giving and how we are to apply and use our money. It's always attached to people and eternity. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 19, Don't hoard treasures down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven, where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Now look at that phrase. He says, stockpile treasure in heaven. Now how do we do that? How do we stockpile treasure in heaven? Because obviously, we can't take it with us. All your wealth, all your possessions. If you haven't heard, don't know that yet, everybody. You can't take it with you. 
You put it in, if you put it in your coffin when you die, then somebody's just going to dig it up and take it with them. You can't, you can't take it with, with you. That's what he's talking about here. The, the only way that we can stockpile treasures in, in heaven is by investing it in people who are going there. That's the only way we can stockpile treasure because there's only two things that are going to last forever. The word of God and people. That's it. That's the only thing that's going to last in eternity. The word of God and people, everything else gets burnt up at the judgment seat of God. And so why is it so important? The reason why this is important for us to invest our time and our energy and our, and our finances in the word of God and people is because of eternity issues. It's because of heaven and hell issues. Jesus told a parable that illustrates this. In Luke chapter 16, verse 1, listen to this. It says, Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give it an account of your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I, I do now? The master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, I, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much money do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, set down quickly, and make it for 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, listen to this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now listen to what Jesus was saying here. Because Jesus was talking about that when you use your money and you invest it in people who then come to Christ, you're making friends for eternity. When you actually use your time, your energy, and your finances, and you use it to invest in people who then come to Christ, you're making friends for eternity. So that when you get to heaven, there's going to be a whole line of people there because of you. Why don't you listen to this story? If you never, this is a great little magazine, by the way. It's from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And this article was in the January uh, magazine. I want, you, I want to read this to you. It's a, it's a little bit of a story. But we're okay for me to read? Story time? All right. In 1921, a missionary couple named David and Sevilla Flood went along with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa, to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another Scandinavian couple, the Ericssons, and the four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt led by the Lord to go out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Nindolera, they were rebuffed by the chief who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go up a half a mile on the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Sevilla Flood, a tiny woman, only four foot eight inches tall, Desire of that, this was the only African she could talk to. She would try to lead that boy to Jesus. In fact, she succeeded. But there was no um, other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. 
In time, the Ericsons decided to return to the central mission station. Dave and Sevilla fled remained near Indolera to go on alone. And then Sevilla found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born, whom they named Ina. The delivery, however, was exhausting and Sevilla flood, was already weak from bouts of malaria. She lasted only another 17 days. Inside David flood, something snapped. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife, and I can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who changed their, her Swedish name to Agnes, or Aggie for short, and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. This family loved the little girl and was afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed, the Hurst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth, um, gave birth first to a daughter and then a son. In time, her husband became president of a, a Christian college in the Seattle area. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, a photo stopped her cold. There in the primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross was the name Sevilla Flood. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight to a college faculty member who could translate the article. The instructor summarized the story. It was about a missionary who had come to Nindolera long ago, the birth of a baby, the death of a young mother, and one old African boy who had been led to Christ. And how, after the missionaries had all left, the boy had grown up and persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. Gradually, he won his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. Now, there were 600 Christian believers in that one village all because of the sacrifice of David and Sevilla Flood. For the Hearst 25th anniversary, the college presented them with the gift of a vacation to Sweden. There, Aggie sought to find her real father. An old man now, David Flood had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had, received, um, he had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule in his family, never mention the name of God, because God took everything from me. After an emotional meeting with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now. But you need to know that when, whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not de deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached a 73-year-old man lying in a, in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Aina, he said, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa? There we go. I've got a little story to tell you. And it's a true one. 
You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you went to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus Christ. That one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 Africans, African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. Okay. The old man turned to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to God and he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America, and within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, the Hearst were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, where a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of that nation, national church, representing some, listen to this, 110,000 baptized believers... 110,000, spoke eloquently of the gospel. Gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had heard of, of David and Sevilla fled. Yes, madam, the man replied in French, his words then being translated into English. It was Sevilla flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug, then continued, You must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. In time, that is exactly what Aggie Hurst and her husband did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired to carry her father, hired by her father many years before, to carry her back down the mountain in the hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12, verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Then he followed with Psalms 126, verse 5, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Listen. Everybody, this is what it comes down to. And this is what James is talking about here. He's talking about the importance of investing your life, your energy, your finances, not just for right now, but for eternity's sake. Because our, our, we need to use our affluence for eternal influence. God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others. And our American mentality is so on us, right? It's all about us. And so this is something you have to fight. You have to dig in. There's got to be a, a bigger perspective by which you live your life. Otherwise, American consumerism will grab a hold of you, and it, it just grabs, it selfishness begins to consume us. And this is why I wanted to say at the beginning, I'm just so proud of all of you, this congregation, of how. There's still areas, I think, for us to grow, right? But how you, you've done this all these last nine months, of how you've invested in so many people's lives. I'm just, I'm just so grateful. And knowing that there's eternal, there's eternal things that are happening because of that. If you would, I want you to just close your eyes here. Because I, don't, I, don't, I just want you to think about anybody else. Let's just kind of make this personal. Let God put his finger on things as if there are things that he needs to put his fingers on. Because I, I want you to think about your own financial situation. Because I really believe God wants you to be financially free. 
Uh, and I just think what Martin Luther said is just so true. There are three conversions a person needs to experience. The conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the pocketbook. I just think that's something that has to be worked in and out of us. And, and so I want you to think about this in your own life. Because have you been saving money faithfully? Is, is, that, is that even on your radar? Have you been making money honestly? You know, have, have you slipped in that area and you're kind of you're getting loose? And the honesty part of how you're making money. Have you been spending your money wisely? I mean, where is that for you? And then have you been giving money generously? All of these are, are principles of God's word. And, and really to leave any of these out is going to short-circuit God's plan in your life and give you less than God's best. It's so important for us to hear this. God is not opposed to wealth. That's not what this is about. God wants to bless you. But he wants to bless you, not that it just ends in you, but it passes through you so that you can be a blessing to others. See, God's not opposed to wealth. He's opposed to the wrong use of it. And so that's why God wants to put, God wants us to put him in charge of every area of our life, where we surrender our relationships, where we surrender our hopes and our desires, where we surrender our past, our future, where we surrender this moment, this day to him where we surrender what's going on in our bodies, where we surrender what's going on in our thoughts, where we surrender what's going on in our emotions, as well as being able to surrender what's going on in our finances. And so, right where you are, would you just consider that? Would you allow just the Holy Spirit to speak into that for you? To speak into how you're living your life? Maybe you just got, you've gotten a little bit off. Would you allow just the Holy Spirit just to come in there? And would you hear just in this moment... Would you just surrender? Would you just surrender those things, those worries, those concerns? Would you surrender every part? Don't try to leave anything out. Just surrender all, all of these things to him. Father, I pray for every one of us here. Father, for this moment. Father, that you would make us eternally minded. Lord, that we would invest in things that are eternal. And Lord, if we've gotten off, as James said, if we've gotten selfish, if we've gotten just, it's about us, it's about me, Lord, we just come into that space and reorder it. God, would you put that straight line back inside of us? Father, we make a decision right now to surrender, to surrender these things to you, to surrender all, every part of us, including our pocketbook. We're going to take communion here together. And Jesus makes the statement that as often, well, Paul actually makes it, but it's after Jesus' commission, that as we gather together, as often as you gather together, we're to do this. And this is, this is a responsive thing. Listen, everybody, Jesus has already given his life for you. That's what we celebrate for Christmas. I have Christmas, Easter. Yeah, Christmas and Easter, the whole gospel story. That's what we celebrate. 365 days a year, we get to celebrate, right? We're celebrating this. But there's a response to all of this. Jesus has already done that. He's already given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's already made a way for you to know God. He's already paid the penalty for every sin, every mistake that you've done. You don't have to carry that yourself. We just ask him to come into our life. Communion is this action point where we say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And I receive you into my life. And in return, I give you my life. 
I give every part of it. I surrender to you. And so we have two stations up front here. And how we do this is that you don't have to be a member of this church to do this. This is something that Jesus set up for us. And so if you're giving your life, you're, you're making a decision to give your life to Jesus right now, let this be your action point. And how we do this is that we'll start with the front row. You'll exit into the middle aisle. Come this direction. If you'll take just a piece of bread and dip it in the juice, then circle back around into your aisle and, and just have that moment, just that moment with yourself. The worship team's going to kind of lead us this way. We have ministry teams that are along the side. If you want somebody to pray with you over whatever's going, just grab them. They love to be able just to release um, just the presence of God into your situation. So if you would, send your feet, and let's do this here together. Thanks again for being here with us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, we want to help. You can find everything you need online at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages on your favorite podcast player, and you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 930 and 1130. We'll see you next time.